0: Keith Law. Welcome to episode 136 of The Keith Law Show. We'll be joined today by film critic Matt Singer to talk about his new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever, which is wonderful even if you don't remember Siskel and Ebert on TV, but I do, so I particularly enjoyed the book. And uh, I have to say, I laughed quite a bit at some of the stories, especially some of the the behind-the-scenes stories that Matt was able to uncover. Uh, For folks who subscribe to The Athletic, unfortunately, I haven't had any new content in the last week because I'm waiting for somebody to do something. Someone needs to make a trade or some free agent needs to change teams. I feel like we should be getting there soon. I did write a tiny bit uh, with the announcement of the Rookies of the Year on Monday night. You can see just a paragraph or so of analysis, um, if you can even call it that. These were just such obvious choices. A reader did ask in the comments under that post if we had ever had... or or when the last time was that the number one and number two prospects coming into a season won the rookies of the year award. Um, or even I would expand it just to say when was the last time the top prospect in the NL coming into the season and the top prospect in the AL coming into the season won the award. The answer is the same actually in my 17 years of doing this, I guess 16 really, if you're counting times, I actually did lists, uh, I don't think it's ever happened. In 2015, Chris Bryant was my number one overall prospect. He won. And then Carlos Correa was my number three overall prospect, number two in the American League, and he won. So we had one in three, number one in the NL, number two in the AL. Byron Buxton was in the middle. Um, and I remember that being a difficult choice, but I chose Buxton for... The potential upside, obviously, of his speed, his position, his defensive value, did not really quite anticipate just how often, unfortunately, he would be getting hurt. Uh, But I thought that was a really good question and a better way to frame it because there just wasn't a lot to talk about with these Rookie of the Year awards. They were just really not that interesting. I did note in the column and, again, uh, discussed a little bit in the comments, my ballot was Corbin Carroll one James Outman of the Dodgers, too, and Matt McClain, who was extremely valuable in just basically half a season for the Reds. And I think that's the one award where it is completely fair to consider players with less playing time and not necessarily to scale them up, but to just consider what they did in the playing time they were given, because it's the one award, obviously, where we we do have a lot of candidates come up during the season and thus not get a full season of playing time. So I put him third. Uh, on my ballot, recognizing it didn't really matter. Corbin Carroll was going to win. I thought he was going to win unanimously, and he did. For folks who follow me for board game content, I also did have a new review go up on Paste Magazine at the end of last week of the game Fit to Print, which is pretty great actually has a little bit of a real time grabbing tiles from the table, everybody doing it at the same time, um, which kind of have a timed element if you want, and then you're placing them on your little grid to try to lay out what is supposed to be a newspaper for woodland creatures, um, which lends itself to a lot of very funny artwork on the individual tiles. So there's a tremendous amount of work that went into creating those tiles. And uh, it's pretty great, it's pretty fast. I think you can play it with a lot of ages. It's definitely one of the best games I've played so far this year. My guest today is Matt Singer, author of the new book Opposable Thumbs: How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. He's also the editor and film critic for ScreenCrush.com and the chair of the New York Film Critics Circle. You can find him on the Bad Place at Matt Singer. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, my pleasure. So I had your book out on the kitchen counter while I was reading it uh, last week, and two of my kids asked me what it was about. But as I started to describe it, I realized they. Absolutely no idea who Siskel and Ebert were, um, which is funny because I don't, I'm 50, I don't remember a time when they were, when I didn't know who they were, you know, that I grew up watching TV and movies in the 80s. I think my parents liked watching the show more than they actually liked watching movies. So for the youths in the audience here, because I definitely have a lot of (laughs) listeners who are younger, can you give a quick sense of just who these two guys were and how they changed American film culture?
1: Yes, I have two kids of my own, and they also are very perplexed by this thing that I made about these people that <laughs> Who are these guys? Why are they sitting in a movie theater on your book cover? And why are they always wearing sweater vests and V-neck sweaters? And so, yes, if you are unfamiliar, uh, Siskel and Ebert were these two originally print film critics from Chicago. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. They started working for their newspapers in the late 60s. And then in the mid 1970s, someone or perhaps someones, there is some mm-hmm. dispute about this, as there are in so many aspects of the Siskel and Ebert story. There's dispute everywhere you go on and off screen. <laughs> That's fitting. Yes, it's very fitting, which I I really enjoyed as I was doing the book. But um, yeah, so someone or someone's at WTTW, the Chicago Public TV station, thought it might be a good idea to do a show about movies and to have these two guys be the hosts. Um, There were probably two main issues at the start, one being... Um, they were not very experienced on television and not very good on television. And the other problem was they hated each other in the beginning, <laughs> at least they genuinely disliked each other, could not stand each other's presence, considered each other like mortal enemies. Um, I don't know if you have any, like, do you have baseball mortal enemies? I actually was wondering this, like, no, we do you pretend. Have a...
0: like... okay you know people always think that like Jonathan Mayo and I or Eric Longenhagen and I cuz we all do prospect stuff that we must dislike each other and right. we we joke about it right but in
1: reality it's
0: it's not it's not right. at all. so
1: so imagine that but real because these right, guys right. genuinely <laughs> did hate each other and um despite all of that the show eventually became kind of yeah this cornerstone of america american cinema culture From about the mid-70s all the way until 1999. And, you know, the show was on PBS for a number of years. Then Gene and Roger left the show to start their own syndicated show and made lots of money, became even more famous. And through their show, yes, I think absolutely helped define kind of what film criticism looked like for a generation of which you and I are definitely
0: a part of. So these two film nerds, because that's really what we would call them today, at least, both of whom were very serious about criticism in their own ways, becoming, as you said, legitimate stars in their own right, who were ended up very highly paid. You talk a lot about how the big bumps they would get as they moved from outlet to outlet. And they were so famous, they were often parodied. It seems extremely unlikely to me, especially in that era. So... And you've touched on this a little bit, but I'd love you to elaborate. Do you see any way that happens to them individually if they don't have this partnership where the disagreements were such a big part of the appeal? In terms of
1: just how the magnitude of how big they got, no, I don't think either one gets there on their own. It really was the magic of the two of them, Um, and specifically these two guys, because there have been a lot of attempts after they became successful to replicate that formula. And really, none of them have worked, certainly not to the degree that Siskel and Ebert worked. I think some of the I don't know if you would call them imitators, but certainly the spiritual successors in other genres like sports and politics, we can think of examples where those have worked very well and become, you know, almost as kind of um, cultural touchstones in the way that Siskel and Ebert were in their day in the world of movies. But yeah, it was something about these guys. Again, the fact that they really had this authentic rivalry and bitter competition and just did not want the other to win and refused to budge an inch, no matter what they were talking about or the subject, it it, it made both of them better and it made both of them bigger um, because they were these (laughs) bizarre larger than life guys. And yeah, they would go do talk shows and uh, Saturday Night Live. They I guess you wouldn't say they technically hosted, but they were two of three people who appeared in one very strange episode of Saturday Night Live called the SNL Film Festival, where it was basically a clip show of old, you know, SNL short films. And the only new material in this entire show was Billy Crystal who did a monologue and he was one of the, he, he was a regular member of the cast at that time, but it's Billy Crystal doing a monologue, doing a sketch as Fernando, where he like makes fun of Siskel and Ebert to their faces. And then uh segments where Siskel and Ebert are like reviewing the short films right after they air on the show and saying how crummy a lot of them are. It's a very surreal that anything like that could ever <laughs> exist. And um maybe not too shocking that that episode has not really aired in uh, perpetuity very often it's kind of <laughs> hard hard to find but i do think that the fact that it was these two guys and they would do these talk shows and these appearances together and they always had that same combative energy wherever they went yes did help them become these huge figures whereas you know after very sadly gene siskel passes away really young you know, Letterman, who was, you know, really their biggest fan in, in the TV world and had them on so many times together. You know, after Siskel passes away, he has Roger on alone uh, a couple of times. And that's, and then he kind of, that kind of stops. And I think you get the sense that even he, as a fan of Siskel and Ebert, as much as he probably liked Roger alone, had to say, it's just not the same. It's not the same act. It's not the same thing. And so, yeah, I do think that it was something about that alchemy of these two dudes together that was this special thing that enabled them to become, uh, really, to transcend the world of of film criticism.
0: You you just mentioned uh, one of the things I found most interesting about the books I'd never considered before was that part of their legacy is the. Usually, two dudes yelling at each other, format of television, right? I used to work for a station that that's kind of all they do all day, every day. And I think many of us who, particularly those of us who come from the writing side, don't look particularly kindly upon that. Okay. Like you know, those guys make their money. That's great. I understand. But that's not, we're not elevating the debate here. But Siskel and Ebert were, and one of, and I think the book really reinforced, but my sense always was these guys did a lot to bring attention to movies they thought were really great and just deserved a wider audience, which to me is, you know, people hear film critic and think, well, your job is to criticize. And I don't, obviously I've never had that job, but my sense is always, no, you you want to tell people what movies are good. Same way I want to tell people, I saw this player and I think he's going to be really good because it's exciting because we like what we do. And it seems like that was, Something that, you know, my my impression was right based on the book. These guys really did. They loved movies and they wanted to tell you, the audience, go see this, go see hoop dreams. You have a whole list in here and even some in the back, which, you know, movies that they loved that didn't get the audience. But it seems like that was a big part of um their passion. And I think part of the enduring appeal of the show as well.
1: Yeah, and and Gene Siskel said in interviews or public talks uh, multiple times that that was the best part of doing the show was, yes, that we call them film critics and that's the name of the job when people do it as a profession. But saying this movie movie stinks, that's a part of the job, perhaps sometimes an enjoyable part of the job, let's be honest. But – there is also a side of the job that is film advocacy. You know, we don't there's nobody has the job film advocate, but that's basically what you're talking about. And that is the part that Siskel would talk about being his favorite part of doing the show is when they would see something that was a little movie, an house movie, an independent movie, a foreign movie, a documentary. And they were able to say to their audience of millions of people who are watching every single week. This is a movie that's worth your time. You know, they talked about and reviewed all the big movies every week, but their format allowed them to always talk about one or two other things that were, you know, probably not even playing in a lot of the towns where the show is being syndicated. And they would say, you need to look out for this movie. You need to ask your art house theater to book it. You need to go to your video store which was a thing that existed at that time (laughs) and tell them to order the videotape or the laser disc. Those were also things that existed at that time. Um, So yes, that was really important to them. And um, you know, at a Q and a that I did, someone asked a question about like, well, they were serious about movies and they loved movies, but, but then they also did these things like appearing on the SNL film festival. And did they ever like, feel weird about that or feel like that was um, outside of what they should be doing in their jobs. You know, what what, should they have stuck to just reviewing movies and were they getting too famous or something like that? And my response was, I think that anytime they did those other extracurricular shows, they were, uh, they were promoting themselves certainly, but they were basically building an audience. They Mm -hmm. were incurred, you know, if you like them on Letterman, You know, maybe you'll tune in and watch the show and then you'll discover these other movies. Every time they were out there was a chance to kind of um, increase their profile, which could in turn increase the amount of viewers they had, which could in turn uh, increase the number of people that they could encourage to see Hoop Dreams or Gates of Heaven or My Dinner with Andre or a million other movies that they did that to. And, yeah, I think that was it's, it's it's sort of the one of the interesting parts of the show, right, is that they were famous for arguing and bickering and not getting along. And that was 100 percent part of the appeal of the show. But there was this whole other side. And I, I was a huge fan growing up. I loved the show for that reason. But there was this whole other side, which was when you watch the show, you learn stuff and it wasn't in a dry way. It was a fun show to watch where you would also walk away from it saying, OK, I got to go watch. This movie or that movie, I got to go to the video store and track down this old movie that they recommended on home video. You know, it it made you want to be more into movies and to see more movies. They had that they the the passion that they had was very infectious. And I, I again, I say that from 100 percent from personal experience.
0: And I still remain fascinated by the fact that these two, again, very serious film critics, both very intelligent great writers, very dedicated to their craft. They were completely open to popular films, kids' films, even the occasional lowbrow comedy. And you bring up some of the... It's funny, because those are some of the cases where they would disagree the most, where one of them would like a movie, and the other one would basically say, that's stupid. That is a terrible movie, and I cannot believe you are saying positive things about it. There some of those, I don't want to spoil any of some of those passages, some of the best parts of the book, too, because you're really... You bring me back to watching the show. Even if I don't remember that particular episode, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This whole vibe feels extremely familiar to me. And I I feel like a big part of the appeal also is that they would talk about those. They talk about art films. They talk about awards bait. They talk about documentaries, which are never going to find the same kind of audience. But they would talk about the movies you could also go to the multiplex and see. And every once in a while, they'd actually like one of those movies. They would. And they would,
1: uh, you know, and they would also sometimes when the movies uh, merited it, they would talk about them seriously. You know, it Mm -hmm. wasn't just a simple, oh, I like this or, oh, I dislike this. Let's move on. You know, they could bring in sometimes surprising topics about, you know, religion, spirituality, you know, like uh, not to uh, get too high minded about it. But, you know, when I'm doing this book and I'm rewatching hundreds of episodes of this tough, show. Tough, tough job, man. Tough. Oh, it's bru- Oh, It was brutal. <laughs> it was horrible. It was the it was the best. Um, you're going, I, you know, like, yes, the reviews are not certainly not never as long as any film podcast is today about any movie, like not even close. It's a it's a fraction at most. Maybe they would talk about some movie maybe for 10 minutes. And that includes like clips. And that's mm-hmm. rare. The average is probably like five minutes. Mm-hmm. And yet, the, the 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 places that they would go in these conversations, the, the the topics they would bring into them, when they would talk about their own reactions, when they would talk about their own personal philosophies, when they would talk about you know, and just the way they would review movies in, from different perspectives. It's also like a great way if you care about film criticism, which mm-hmm. I certainly do, and as I'm watching the show as a kid, I'm sort of like almost like through osmosis and subliminally kind of uh, getting this stuff is that they're kind of teaching you about different ways to uh, uh, think about movies and to judge movies. Like is a movie good if it's, if it has low, um, if if it's aiming low and it achieves its goal, is that a good movie? Is that a thumbs up or is that a thumbs down? If a movie has, enormous ambitions but Mm -hmm. fails to achieve those ambitions is that Mm -hmm. thumbs up and thumbs down and often Siskel and Ebert would have totally different opinions about both of those questions and so you know when they're reviewing movies they are not just reviewing the movie they are sort of reviewing each other and each other's tastes and each other's opinions and each other's approaches to their jobs which they at times had very different approaches to how to do this job and I, again, I think that all makes for the show. Even today, rewatching it now, it's a fascinating thing to go back and and look at. It is a great deep dive on YouTube. I, I you know, it's it, mm-hmm. it, it it is not something. I guess in some ways, it's dated. Yes, some of the fashions certainly are dated. <laughs> but if you. It's like some of the stuff they're talking about and the ways that they're talking about it, it's kind of this wonderful. I think of it more of like this time capsule that it's really interesting to go back and look at what was going on in the world of movies in 1985 or 1991 or 1978. Every week they did an episode. You get a pretty good snapshot of what was going on. What was new in theaters? What was new on home video? What issue people were talking about? You could learn a lot from watching Siskel and Ebert. Uh, I mean, I granted, I'm somewhat biased in this uh, opinion, but I really believe it.
2: So I, I actually met
0: Siskel very briefly in 1990, but honestly, I think I still gravitate more towards Ebert's writing and his general approach to films. Even now, I think I appreciate it more when I go back and read some of his old stuff or, or come across an old video clip. Um, and you mentioned this a little bit in the book where a lot of people would say I'm a Siskel person or I'm an Ebert person. So which are you or do you find yourself a little bit of both?
1: I, uh, I'm not necessarily, well, first of all, I want to hear about the Siskel story because I never got to meet Gene Siskel. I mean, was it, is there?
0: Is what, what's, what's the story? I want to hear not, it. It is not that exciting, but I was invited oh, okay. as a senior in high school to a big uh, event in Chicago. It happened to be in Chicago that year and where there. They also had a lot of luminaries from various other fields, from the arts, science, sports. I believe the guy who invented RU486, the, the so-called abortion pill, was also there. And Steve Largent was also there. And so I met George Lucas at this event. And Siskel, what I particularly remember, was Siskel giving a talk at um, – we were at Old Comiskey Field – um, which was the first time I'd ever been in a major league dugout. Obviously, I guess that's foreshadowing of some sort. But my God was that that place looked like it was going to fall down at any minute. Like if you breathe too hard, <laughs> the whole thing was just going to come tumbling down, um, which is not to say anything nice about the new White Sox ballpark. It certainly doesn't have the charm of the old one. But uh, anyway, yeah, he was one of the speakers and got to shake his hand real quick. And even at the time, was like I know who that is. He's on television. That was pretty, you know, what I was a 16 or 17 at the time. Was like, Okay. This is a big deal. This is pretty impressive. I'm sure I was more impressed by him or Steve Largent than some of the probably far more important scientists or others yes. who were there.
1: Yeah. I would, I would have been as well. Um. So yeah. I, in terms of who I tend to favor, <clears throat> I, as a kid watching the show, I, I never had a favorite. I wasn't one of those people who was team Roger or team gene or whatever. I, Always liked the two of them, and I always thought that what made the show work was that I that there to me there wasn't a clear superior critic or better opinion. It was that this ongoing struggle that they were having to sort of determine critical supremacy was never going to be resolved. That they were going to be Mm -hmm. fighting about this unto forever. Like that, I think was what appealed to me. When I got a little older, you know, Siskel passes away. Right. Ebert has this whole kind of second and third act without him, where he becomes an even more sort of prolific writer. He's writing more about outside of the world of movies. You know, <clears throat> after he loses his ability to speak, years later he starts this blog. He starts uh, using Twitter when it was still the you know not a bad place, and he was writing so insightfully and passionately about himself. He was also putting out these wonderful books, which I own all of, you know, the great movies, books and and things like that, where I really came to appreciate him as a writer, which mm-hmm. growing up in suburban New Jersey at a time right. where there wasn't really an Internet, there was not really a way to read either one of their reviews. They only really existed in my mind as a kid as TV guys. I mean, I knew that they worked for newspapers, but I couldn't really experience that. But then, I mean, again, going into this project as an Ebert guy, Mm -hmm. uh, going back and rewatching the show, I I went back to that same view I had as a kid where it's like these guys are just good together. And they both have things that are, I think, essential to the dynamic, not just uh, as like on camera presences, but also like critically, the way that they approach the job and the way that they looked at movies. And it's like they both brought things to the table they both both had essential elements of the formula so yeah i've never had at least when they're together i've never really had
0: like a a favorite both of the book's main subjects died some time ago as you mentioned but it seems like otherwise you had incredible access to people who were in their professional or their personal lives both of their widows it looks like you had quite a bit uh quite quite a lot of conversations with them and uh, a huge number of people who worked on one or more of the various iterations of the show, including what appears to be all the women who produced them over the years, too. Uh, was this uh, This maybe a little bit of a leading question, but was this one of those where everyone was just really excited to talk about this? Or did you find you had to kind of work a little bit to get people to come, especially because there are stories. There are some negative stories. There are stories of conflict, I should say, rather than negative stories about these two.
1: Yeah, there's stories. There's 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 stories of conflict. There's sort of. But what I find is that uh, for the most part, really, everyone I I reached out to who spoke to me, you know, like, yes, like they tell these stories about these guys, about, you know, them. I don't want to say misbehaving, but just like just being a pain in the butt, basically, and just constantly (laughs) needling each other, pranking each other, just making each other's lives difficult but they don't really the people who worked for them don't really talk about them as if they were, you know, bad bosses or that it was a they were a nightmare to work with. It's more the opposite. It's more they 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 love telling these stories and they sort of look back on the show as this really valuable important thing that they're proud to have been a part of and to have contributed to. And yeah, I mean, I I, I, it seemed like most people were excited to talk to me. I mean, I did help that I never met Siskel, but I did meet and work a little bit with Ebert Mm -hmm. in his later years um, on on the final version of the show. And so doing that, you know, I had met his widow, Chaz Ebert, you know, doing that and then um, having worked on that version of the show and also actually a previous version that Ebert was not involved with after he left the show, the one that was hosted by Ben Lyons and Ben Mankiewicz. Mm-hmm. I had been a, well, I, I think they called them contributing critics, or I don't know what what we were called. We were part of this segment called the Critics Roundup, which was even more like cable news than the regular Siskel and Ebert format, where they had the hosts talking live via satellite with other critics in other locations. And doing that, I had, <clears throat> excuse me, mm-hmm. I had auditioned, to do that and to have a role on the show. And I had met several longtime Siskel and Ebert staffers. And when I did this, yes, I was excited to audition. I didn't think I had a shot of doing anything with the show, but I was excited to like, that's Don Dupree. He was the director of Siskel and Ebert. I know his name from the end credits of the show for decades and decades. And so when I met him, I was like fanboying out at Don Dupree, like which with <laughs> all due respect, <clears throat> with all due respect to Don Dupree, I don't imagine that happens to him that much in his in his professional life. And I and this is, you know, 15 years ago, I had no designs on writing a book. I just wanted to I would just ask questions about the show because I was such a huge fan and I wanted to hear their stories. I would say, tell me stories. I wanted, what was it like working with Gene and Roger? What were they really like? Did they really <laughs> like each other? Did they? And. You know, I think they sensed the the genuine uh obsessive nerdiness that I had, and they and guys like him told me stories. and then when I did come around to writing the book, I was able to kind of uh, reconnect with those people and say, "Would you talk to me?" And I think they knew that I was kind of coming from it from a place of wanting to really pay tribute to the show and these guys and that. Um, I was going to take it seriously and, uh, you know, do do my best to write the book that that I always wanted to read about Siskel and Ebert. And so that certainly, I think, helped as well kind of get my foot in the door and get me the first couple of interviews and then branch out from there. You
0: mentioned in the very last chapter, you did talk particularly about Rotten Tomatoes and and as sort of the end of this through line about did Siskel and Ebert dumb down film criticism by introducing this binary system of thumbs up and thumbs down. I don't get the sense you agree with that premise. I personally don't agree with that premise. I also think that people are going to dumb stuff down anyway, whether they <laughs> they will take what you say and they will simplify it if that suits their purposes. But but what is your take on that and the evolution, I guess you would say, in film criticism from? siskel and ebert introducing this very simple yes or no uh summary of much longer reviews as we sort of move forward to now it's rotten tomatoes is it certified fresh or not
1: right yeah people taking what you say and taking it out of context or dumbing it down you you certainly must have no experience with that whatsoever i mean none no 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 one who writes about on the internet could ever have any experience (laughs) with that um and to your point yeah i think that um the Thumbs, which do have this kind of complicated legacy. Yes. They, you know, it's, it's sort of blaming, um, you know, blaming them for movie studios um, looking at this very successful and popular show and exploiting it, which is what movie studios and the publicity departments of these studios, that's their job to do um i'm not even necessarily putting a value judgment on that necessarily that's what they're supposed to do they're supposed to get people to go see their movies and they they realized that one of the ways that was effective to do that was to take these ratings um and put them in their marketing and that would you know that certainly became kind of a good housekeeping seal of approval for movies the two thumbs up brand, you know, which was so valuable that Siskel and Eber trademarked it at the time that, you know, so that no other critics, at least film people, could could use it. I I do think, though, that, yeah, I mean, if you look at the show, the show was not, uh, you know, here's a movie. okay, we give it thumbs up. okay, next movie. Like the, the thumbs were this thing at the end that they would just kind of recap what they had discussed on the show. The actual reviews were them debating, discussing. Uh, you know, they were film advocates, as we said, it wasn't just this snap judgment kind of thing. And you know, even before the thumbs and even before in the original version of the show on PBS, they didn't even have thumbs. They had yes and no, those were the, that predated the thumbs. But film critics used star ratings before Siskel and Ebert came along. And I would uh, assume that if we looked at print ads from, you know, that era before the show, we'd probably find people using marketers using five stars or whatever star rating in their ads before there were Siskel and Ebert. So to your point about things are always getting dumbed down or what have you, uh, I do think that's that's true. And I think Siskel and Ebert's legacy in terms of what they did beyond the thumbs is is uh, so positive in so many ways in terms of the filmmakers they supported and championed, the films that they supported and championed, the people who watched the show uh, at, like me as kids who were inspired to become film critics, the people who not like me who watched the show who were inspired to become filmmakers, right. the people who watched the show who were just inspired to watch movies or to become more film literate or to think more about movies instead of just saying. Oh, that was OK. It was fine. You know that they they <laughs> sort of they started to think about things like, is it, you know, like, oh, black and white movies are good, which was something that they weirdly uh, it seems now we I, I, I think people are OK with black and white movies. They certainly don't like colorized movies, which was a huge thing that they fought against in the late 1980s or, you know, uh, some of these things are so arcane now, but just that they had to, like, educate their viewers about letterboxing. You know, because TVs at the time were basically squares, they were boxy, right? And movies were made in the basically in the format that TVs are now, which is widescreen. And when and when VHS tapes, when uh, when studios started letterboxing them to to fit them on boxy TV screens, viewers would be like, I'm missing some of the movie. And they had to, you know, they had to, like, educate people that, no, actually, that's how to get the whole movie. Right. <laughs> so all sorts of things like that where they had this positive uh, impact. So, yeah, I, I I, mean, I'm not the right person to ask, perhaps, because I would not be doing this if not for Siskel and Ebert. But right. I just I uh, so it's sort of a personal thing for me. But I've just I've never really bought into that idea that they destroyed or dumbed down film criticism. And And when you look at it now and look at the world around us now. To say that Siskel and Ebert were the death or destruction or dumbing down of film criticism compared to some of the things you can find today. Yeah, that is sort of a it's sort of a a ludicrous thing to say, I think.
0: (laughs) My last question, you mentioned this a few times in the book, and we've talked a little bit here and there, but there were a lot of parodies, some involving Siskel and Ebert, some not you have a favorite i'll I'll just say i went back and watched the time they were on sesame street with oscar and telly which is pretty fantastic um which devolves into an argument over over whether you can have a thumb sideways movie um but also i really enjoyed in robert townsend's hollywood shuffle sneaking in the movies which uh, Mm a friend of mine ended up quoting to each other for years when we would go see movies that were terrible and we would say what do you give that yeah we give that the finger
1: yes those are both very good examples. I mean, as a kid I always liked when they would show up in Mad Magazine because I was a reader yes. of Mad Magazine. So, inevitably, you know, they, and they would always have like they would have to come up with different names for them, you know, and I'm Roger Ebor or whatever it was. <laughs> I would always get a kick out of out of seeing them in Mad um because they did seem like larger than life figures to me at the time on TV and the seeing them show up in Mad kind of only increased increased that uh, aspect they were good also on the critic something that's not really I mean I think maybe it's mentioned in the book but their, their episode of the critic is pretty um, amusing yeah. great show and really 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 funny right and a show that without question would not exist if not for Siskel and Ebert the this year idea that you could make a, a fictional cartoon show about a tv film critic I mean that only exists right in a world in which Siskel and Ebert are are huge Celebrities. I'll give you one more because it was the one that I, if I had seen it as a kid, I did not remember it. And I found it doing the research and it really kind of amused me. And it's not necessarily a parody, but it is Siskel and Ebert appearing on, again, talking about how their like influence and how big they became. Nickelodeon started their own like film review show in the 80s, Mm -hmm. hosted by kids. It was like kids, Siskel and Ebert. And on one episode, Siskel and Ebert showed up and they sat there with the, the the kids. And you would think these kids are only doing this because of Siskel and Ebert, right? And that to some extent, you would think that they would be sort of nice to these kids because they're kids. They're like, I don't know, they're 12, 15 years old. They're in that range and they are not kind to these kids. They are Siskel and Ebert and they when they when they're reviewing movies and they disagree with the kids, they say strongly negative things, they disagree with them openly. And it's like and I just think that it's so like true to the spirit of Siskel and Ebert, which always was uh you know that blunt kind of honest talk in any context in any situation, they weren't going to spare people's feelings you know, they would go on The Tonight Show and sit next to Chevy Chase and say that Three Amigos is a bad movie. Yeah. Great story. Uh, Yeah. I mean, like, I just love that even on like a show hosted by children, they still were just that. They still kept saying, you really like this movie, kids? This is this is the movie you're going to give a, a, a positive <laughs> review to. OK. <laughs> you know, they didn't temper it at all for that audience. I just I found that Uh, really fabulous. And you can find that on YouTube. I think it's called like Rated K for Kids. So if you Google or YouTube, Rated K for Kids, Siskel and Ebert, it's up there. And it is really uh, a really entertaining 30-minute watch.
0: My guest today has been Matt Singer, author of the new book, Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. You can find his work at ScreenCrush.com and on Twitter at Matt Singer. Matt, thanks again for joining. It me. was a pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, for those of you who are let on Twitter at last or have left Twitter, which I can't blame you, I look forward to the day where um, I'm not there at all, but I don't really feel like I can do that at this point, just from a work perspective. You can find me on threads at Mr. Keith Law, MR Keith Law, the same as I am on Instagram. Um, where I've been doing some board game giveaways. Also, if you follow me on Instagram, check every Monday or Tuesday, I put up a new giveaway. I have a lot of extra board game copies, so I'm distributing them to readers. Um, You can find me on Blue Sky at Keith Law, Spoutable at Keith Law as well. And I do have an email newsletter. I finally picked that back up. If you go to tinyletter.com slash Keith Law, if you just cannot get enough of me, those are lots of other places to find my work. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe.